Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully uh, for Tully's Take on History. You're right. I'm not doing a lecture today. Well, I kind of am doing a lecture today. This is uh, this isn't exactly for a class. This is more of a general interest. I I post on social media if people would be interested in me talking about films and not just films, but um, not just film history, but just how history has been portrayed in films. Y'all seem to be uh, pretty interested in it, so um, let me give you a little bit of background about this. So here at Nichols State, I teach a number of classes, and I actually teach a number of classes of my own design. Um, yes, I always teach a couple of sections of U.S. History Survey, but um, I also also teach a, um, always teach a few classes outside of that. A lot of times they're like African American history, but I've taught a few classes of my own design, uh, including hip hop history, history of pop culture. But probably the highest concept one is Hollywood and the historical past. Basically, how does Hollywood talk about history, and specifically American history? Um, maybe in the future I'll revamp this class to talk about other histories. However, I'm most familiar with American history because I am an American historian, and I'm also an American, and I'm somebody who's interested in movies. Now, this is not a film history class. I'm not going back to the time of the Lumineer Brothers or going back to Thomas Edison and silent films, talkie films, that sort of thing. I do cover that in my pop culture class, and I do think it's pretty interesting. I mean, I am a pop culture historian. I know quite a bit about the history of film. However, this is a bit different. This is how is the movies tackling the subject of history. Um, historical movies are very popular. It's something that's been pretty popular since the inception of movies. And uh, it's often a way that a lot of people learn about American history. Even inadvertently, the films that we watch are a lot of times our first real um, foray into understanding the historical past. And generally, that's that's kind of the thing that gets set up in our mind that ultimately, you know, we're going to have to dispel. Now, this is not just, here's all the historical inaccuracies. That's, that's a different class. That's not even a class. That's just a... That's a troll on Twitter, just pretty much, you know, poking holes in a movie, saying what all is wrong with it. I do get into that some, but what I'm more interested in is what do the films tell us about ourselves? You know, what aspects get focused upon in these movies, and how can we go in deeper into understanding some of the intellectual and often theological underpinnings of American thought? Basically, who are we as Americans? Now, I'm going to be upfront with this. I am an American, talking about American history, generally through American movies. Um, other countries have made a few films about American history. I'll even talk about one um, a couple weeks down, uh, a couple recordings later, when I talk about the, uh, the old Shatterhand movies. But this is going to be a very American-centric series. Now, for some of you... You're probably in the same boat as me, you're, you know, you're American, you know American history, and you watch American movies. But for others of you, maybe you're Canadian, maybe you're, you know, some sort of European person who, who listens to this. I do know a few who do listen. And so that's kind of what I'm focusing upon. It's like, what is it about America and our thought process that really makes it American? What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to have an American identity? And how is the American past something, you know, really hallmarked upon in film? What is it about the American past? Now, as I said before, 
these movies tend to make up, these are sometimes our earliest exposures to various subjects. In fact, I'll freely admit, there's a lot of subjects I first learned about in American history because of movies. Yes, um, there's a lot of things that I learned just by reading or doing my own research. But oftentimes, the first time I hear of it, you know, the first time I get that germ of, oh, man, you know, this is something interesting. I want to learn more about it. It's usually an offline in a movie. And and a lot of times that's what I have to, you know, not what I go against, but that, that really sets my standard, if that makes sense. Like, that's my notions that I have in my mind. And I know I'm not the only one. Um, I could go through several movies that I've enjoyed watching over the years that were my first real exposure to various topics. Um, Okay, uh, trying to think of some off the top of my head. Uh, Okay, Gladiator is Roman history, but uh, okay, uh, Gangs of New York. I remember seeing Gangs of New York, and that was the first time I'd really seen the New York draft riots depicted. Uh, The New York draft riots are actually one of the bigger riots in U.S. history. And the film, Martin Scorsese does talk about that somewhat in the film. It does portray it. It is my first time seeing it. I've since learned a lot more. But in my head, kind of the, you know, the, what my uh, platonic ideal is is what I saw in Gangs of New York. Like, what's in my mind's eye. It's, it's kind of like whenever, you know, I say the word mom or mother, you probably have a picture of your own mother in your head. And, you know, then I have to explain how this mother is different. But, you know, that, that kind of initial inception is that. And, yes, I am talking about philosophy and intellectual, not intellectual, but just like more philosophical than I typically do in history. But it's very important. So with that said, with all the disclaimers out of the way, let's get talking about. Oh, yeah, I should also mention uh, these films. The films themselves are in not chronological order. Like I said, I'm not going from like, you know, you know, OK, we're going to talk about talk about Thomas Edison first. However, I am kind of going into a rough chronological order of what we're talking about in terms of subject matter. And I should also mention, this is history of the United States. I will use United States and America interchangeably. Technically, those are two different sets of history. Um, you know, America is much more than the United States. You know, you have Canada, you have Mexico, you have South America. I mean, that's America. But even the history of North America is more than the United States. You have Canada, you have Mexico. And even the colonies, you have French colonies and Spanish colonies. And, of course, the Native American influence. You can't forget about them. Uh, so I'm really going back to the early days of the United States. This is U.S. history, history of the United States, portrayed by histories from the United States, portrayed by movies from the United States. So this one's going to be the earliest in terms of time set, in terms of the United States, what later would become the United States. And that film is 1995's Pocahontas. As I, as I mentioned, this is actually one of the more recent films I'm going to do. But Pocahontas, I think, is a pretty good starting point for what is the United States. You know, from the earliest days of the colonists, the first English colonists come to the United States in 1607. Uh, That's kind of the earliest germ of American thought. And I know if I say germ, some of you history people are like, oh, my God, you said germ theory. I didn't say germ theory. That's a that's a different thing. But the first uh, first real seed that would kind of oh God, I hate to use this language, but blossom into the United States really comes in 1607 with the Jamestown colony. Now, let's talk about a background of the film. Now, this film comes out in 1995. And the 90s were what's known for Disney. Uh, By the way, if you didn't know, Disney animated this film. It's a Disney production. Disney was in the middle of what's known as a Disney renaissance in the 1990s. Um, 
basically, the 1980s were really brutal to Disney in terms of the animation. Honestly, since Walt's death in the mid-60s, Disney animation had kind of been on a downcline. Some of the movies were not as popular. Uh, A lot of the ways of making the animation got cheaper, and that um, cheapened the product. It looked like it was a lesser quality. Uh, They're not as rich and lush, and they're also not as box office successes. Um, Probably the best example I can give you of the biggest Disney animation flop, uh, a movie I had only heard about and only seen recently because of Disney+, Plus, was The Black Cauldron. Uh, The Black Cauldron, whoo doggies. The Black Cauldron is a rough movie. Um, it was based off of the uh, the Prim Chronicles, which is um, those were movies that uh, well, sorry, it was a series of books by Lloyd Alexander, kind of based off Welsh mythology. Um, Disney was trying to cash in in 1985 on the kind of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, what else am I talking about? Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, a little bit of the Tolkien stuff. I mean, granted, there there'd been an animated Tolkien movie earlier by uh, Rat, Raskin Bass, but um, they're really trying to tap into this kind of, you know, teenage market, more mature. Uh, Don Bluth animation, for instance, that was a Disney kind of splinter, basically somebody who had worked for Disney, but then moved to make his own company, had made things like the Chronicles of Nim. Um, other just darker stuff, more mature-looking stuff. And so Disney's trying to get into this fantasy trend with The Black Cauldron. It is a flop. It is a flop of spectacular portions. Um, animation-wise, I guess it's okay, but like it's it even condenses the, the story. I mean, it's called The Black Cauldron, but it's mainly based on the th- first book, which ironically is called The Book of Three, which that's confusing enough in the in those stories, but yes, uh, the Black Cauldron. It is uh, also features one of the uh, truly scary uh, Disney villains, just in terms of their appearance. The, the Horn King um, in the books, the Horn King is just the dude who wears a a, a mask with stag antlers on it. He, he's he's a man. Uh, he's a man who does wear like a skull mask with with antlers, but he's a dude and he's he's killed fairly easily. Uh, in the movie, the Horn King is like demonic, undead, definitely very strong devil imagery going on. Not as much as the Night of Bald Mountain and Fantasia. That one's pretty much straight up Slavic devil, Slav- Slavic Satan. But uh, this is, I'd say, this is probably the second scariest, overtly scary Disney uh, villain. Black Cauldron flops spectacularly, it flops so hard. And this, you know, the flop of the Black Cauldron loses money, you know, loses a ton of money for Disney. Uh, Basically, they start cleaning house of the animation. And they get its mojo back starting in 1989 with the film The Little Mermaid. And The Little Mermaid is what's known as the beginning of the Disney Renaissance. And then what occurs is a string of hits after another. Like, pretty much Disney seems to do good, can do no wrong in the 90s when it comes to animation. Um, After... The Little Mermaid, you have Beauty and the Beast, then Aladdin, then The Lion King. All these are bonkers hits. All these are bonkers, big time, big money hits, uh, critically acclaimed, audience adored. In fact, uh, The Lion King is like the most successful of them all. And it's, uh, yeah, The Lion King is is interesting (laughs) because 
well, I talk about this more in my pop culture classes, but Disney typically doesn't create new stories. They typically adapt stories. And The Lion King is actually theoretically a brand new story. Now, is it just uh, Hamlet in Africa with lions? Yes. Yes, it is. And also maybe mix in a little bit of Kimba the White Lion from Japanese anime? Sure. But uh, it's unusual that Disney typically adapts stories from other things, which I get into much more in my pop culture class, so maybe listen to some of those Disney pop culture podcasts. Now, what's really interesting is the thing that kind of changes everything is that Beauty and the Beast gets nominated for Best Picture. Um, In 1991, Beauty and the Beast is nominated for Best Picture. Uh, This is back when they did five Best Picture nominations. Now, I don't think anybody really expected Beauty and the Beast to win Best Picture. Um, It lost ultimately to Silence of the Lambs, which is about as far removed from uh, Beauty and the Beast as you can possibly get. So nobody in their right mind expected Beauty and the Beast to get nominated for an Oscar. Um, This kind of changes the tenor of the Disney animation production. At first, it's like, okay, we're making better movies. Yes, we're, we're learning from the, uh, the failures of Black Cauldron. We're making more artistic movies. We're making more, uh, you know, ambitious movies, trying to get the quote-unquote Disney magic back that Walt once had. But the Oscar nomination changes everything for Beauty and the Beast and Disney animation. Because now they're like, oh my gosh, maybe we could win. Maybe we could win one. Maybe we could, you know, make a movie that's going to win all the Oscars. Maybe we can win Best Picture. Maybe an animated film can get Best Picture. That has not happened in Oscar history. Um, Every Oscar movie that's won has been live action. Uh, Yeah, yeah, the, the closest we got was whenever, actually, the first Academy Awards... Not the first Academy Awards. I'm sorry, that was Wings won that. My bad. Uh, whenever Snow White and the Seven Dwarves comes out, Disney gets um, several special Oscars. Actually, there are seven little dwarf-sized Oscars, uh, basically to iterate that. Yes, you know what, Disney. This is a great feat. Um, I'm sorry, I just had to look it, look it up because I forgot off the top of my head. I knew Seven had something to do with it. Uh, Snow White came out in 1937. The original Oscar, the first Oscars were in 1927. My bad. (laughs) My bad. So, now Disney has a chance of maybe winning a Best Picture Oscar. And uh, this is is pretty interesting. Because two films were actually pitched at the same time. Two films were pitched. Pocahontas and The Lion King. So, Pocahontas and The Lion King, they were both pitched around the same time. And most of Disney's top-tier talent, top-tier animators, went towards Pocahontas. Uh, They figured it had the most prestige. It also had the most potential of maybe getting an Oscar nomination. This was going to be the A-list movie. And so the B-team was kind of sent toward The Lion King. But then The Lion King comes out, and uh, it goes freaking ham at the box office. Like, when The Lion King comes out in 1994, it blows away all the expectations. Like, it goes nuts. Now, yes, it does not get any Best Picture nominations, But still, it goes freaking nuts on the box office. It's a huge hit. It's a ginormous hit. Everybody loved The Lion King. And the expectations of Pocahontas got a lot higher. Because, remember, The Lion King was made by the B-team. It was was like, okay, this is the quick one we're going to churn out, just, you know, make a little bit of cash. And then, you know, the real talent is working on Pocahontas. That's going to be the real prestige one. 
So because of these increased expectations and the fact that they're dealing with historical individuals, uh, Pocahontas was actually expected to be a bit more serious and a less cartoony. Um, a lot of things get cut out of the early drafts of Pocahontas, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Talk about a bit later, but a lot of things get cut out of Pocahontas to make it more Oscar bait. Uh, this is Oscar bait, the animated picture. Like the Pocahontas movie is the embodiment of Oscar bait. You know, basically Disney was trying to make high art cartoon that touches on a quite you know potentially serious subject matter in a film, and I I, I really say this is where. Pocahontas really lies in. This is where it pretty much falls in between. It's not quite for kids and not quite for grown-ups. It really tries to skirt the line too much. I mean, yes, it has some, you know, fun kitty things in there, but it's also talking about some potential, potentially very serious subject matter when you're dealing with, you know, historical individuals who have ancestors and stuff who are uh, descendants, I should say, who are still around. Um, so, yeah, their heirs might still be around. They might get offended. And so that really tempers what's going on. Now, to be fair, Disney, in particular Walt Disney, is no stranger to American history in his movies. In fact, he does a lot of stuff with live-action versions of American history. And basically, kind of, you know, some tall tales, but also just this idea of American history. Uh, for instance, Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett is an amazing example of this. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, which, I mean, I guess if you're under a certain age, you're unfamiliar with Disney's Davy Crockett. Uh, Disney's Davy Crockett saved it in the 50s. Uh, pretty much Disney was not doing that great film-wise. Disney movies, uh, animation, if you don't know, animation cost a ton to do. Uh, Disney movies cost a ton to make. And although they make it back somewhat of the box office, it's never like huge hits and it often takes a long time uh, because Disney movies, I mean, they would always re-release them, especially in a pre-VHS, um, pre-recorded media world. Uh, it was very common to re-release Disney movies, um, you know, yes, for, you know, for the kids, but also uh, to try to make some of the money back because animation is very, very expensive. So once Disney has live action in the terms of things like uh, television, um, it really saves their money. It's, it makes them a ton of money, like a freaking ton of money by making these live action TV shows, particularly uh, Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett pretty much shaves Disney single handedly. Um, also, various tall tale characters, uh, Pecos Bill, Mike Fink, uh, Mike, sorry, Mike Fink. He is the king of the longboatmen. He's he's a who he's a he's a very I don't want to say dated, but he's not a, a tall tale figure you hear about too, too much. Uh, Paul Bunyan, all these have like Disney animated or live action versions for him. And likewise, Disneyland and Disney World also have large sections of the park that is uh, dedicated to the American past. Uh, kind of memorializing a mythic version of American past. Uh, for instance, there's Frontierland. That's probably the one you're most familiar with. Frontierland. Uh, if you go to Frontierland, it's it's uh, it's the frontier. You know, you have Tom Sawyer's stuff, and you have like, oh, the, the you know the steamboats and this kind of very um, idealized version of I guess antebellum America. Kind of, it's not even really within a time period. It's just kind of this mythic American past, the frontier, the Wild West, whatever you want to call it. However, Main Street USA, Main Street USA is also very much into this. Uh, Main Street USA very much goes into this mythic version of American past, specifically the 1890s. Um, I go into more detail about this in my pop culture classes, but 
Um, the 1890s are weirdly overrepresented in American pop culture. Uh, people might not even be familiar with just how influential the 1890s are. Uh, yeah, the 1890s, I mean, Disney was born in 1901, so even he's mythologizing a past that he doesn't even really know himself. Uh, it'd be akin to how we kind of idealize the 50s or something. This idea that, like, this is a time period when America was, like, really wealthy and at its best. Um, kind of the birth of the real modern America. You know, the idea of, of cities and the, uh, you have the Columbian Exhibition in 1893. The 1890s are weirdly influential and uh, basically in the American imagination. In the American imagination, uh, I hate to say it's when America was great or make America great again, but... For a lot of people, and honestly, Disney's part of this number, the 1890s were seen as a time when America is at its zenith, it's at its height, and it's a time to memorialize, really seen in Main Street, USA. Main Street, USA is a recreation of a town in the 1890s. Uh, if you notice, the you know all the stores are very 1890-esque. Uh, the Dapper Dance, the Dapper Dance, which are the barbershop quartet you might see, you know, going around uh, Main Street USA at Disney World or Disneyland, they're very much wearing the 1890s clothing with the arm garters and the straw hats, uh, that sort of, of thing going on here. The straw boaters, absolutely. Uh, I, I, a, a movie I'm going to mention that kind of memorializes America's mythologic past, which is kind of problematic, is Song of the South. Uh, Song of the South is a movie about American history that Disney has done its best to deny that it even exists. Uh, I know recently they removed the Song of the South imagery from the Splash Mountain ride. They're switching it with Princess and the Frog, which makes a lot of sense, I think. Uh, Song of the South, um, I will, I'll briefly talk about it. Why not? Song of the South is a movie which, uh, it's about the Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox tales, which are older African-American folk tales. Uh, the movie itself has Uncle Remus, who supposedly, it takes place on a plantation after the Civil War. But they don't really say that Uncle Remus is a sharecropper. He's just a benevolent older black gentleman who hangs around the plantation owner's white children, telling them stories and singing songs like zippity Doodah. Uh, about all I've seen of Song of the South is the song zippity Doodah. Uh, I'm sure there are dark corners of the internet where you can see a full version of it. I might be curious to, to, uh, to, to watch it, I know whenever I was a kid, we had record versions of the Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit tales from Disney, which, you know, they're just the tales. They don't really get into too much of the imagery, for instance, of Song of the South. But still, uh, yeah. The, what Song of the South really, really um, demonstrates is it shows the potential of making a movie that could later be seen as damning. You know, basically, you're going to see this with... Um, with Pocahontas, they want to make something that's somewhat timeless, that cannot be viewed as offensive, may not have stereotypes. They don't want to make something they're going to have to apologize later, particularly with historical figures. Uh, by the time Pocahontas is being made, uh, Song of the South is pretty much completely whitewashed from Disney's backlog. As I said, you might find a version of Zippity Doodah here or there, which is it's an interesting section of the film because it's live action mixed with animation. But uh, but this is some, something done in Disney's life. But even after Disney's death, they really play with this idea of history. The, the Disney Corporation is no stranger in trying to market American mythology. 
the mythologized version of history. Uh, yes, they say it's history, but it's a very mythological, archetypal version of history, which, as I've said earlier, really becomes a kind that gets kind of ingrained in our minds as Americans and as consumers of pop culture as, oh yeah, this is what things were like. So probably the most ambitious failure, the, the most o- ambitious failure, and actually it would have opened concurrently with Pocahontas, was going to be called Disney's America. It was to be a third theme park, a third theme park, a third tentpole for Disney World, Disneyland, and a new park called Disney's America, which was to be a park in Northern Virginia, designed to be uh, theoretically extensively about American history. Theoretically, Disney's America was going to be about American history. Now, uh, it was very close to a Civil War battlefield, which is problematic for all sorts of uh, very, very uh, obvious reasons about are you profiteering off of a battlefield? You know, are you making this sort of stuff? I was able to find some conceptual drawings of what Disney's America might have looked like. Uh, It is fascinating. It is fascinating. They're kind of going for an antebellum vibe. Kind of antebellum, 1830s vibe, 1830s, anti-40s, maybe Age of Jacksony. But also there is a little bit of, uh, you know, some of the concept shots show, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty, as well as uh, kind of Columbia Exhibition type stuff. So kind of mixing the 1890s with the 1830s. Uh, that, to in of itself, may not have been too problematic. The problem is they were wanting to be doubling down on the antebellum thing. Uh, antebellum means before the Civil War. And it would have included plantations with slaves. Now, okay, I'm no fan of slavery, clearly, but part of me would be fascinated to see how Disney would have tried to do this. Uh, I've not been able to find conceptual art of what the Disney plantation would have looked like. I would have loved to seen it just for a uh, slow down at car crashes kind of way. It would have been a disaster, but it would have been an ambitious disaster. There's also questions about the suitability of privatizing history. This idea that you're going to have this amusement park that is only with history, only with history. Um, you know, yes, that had kind of been attempted at uh, Colonial Williamsburg. In fact, that's where Disney um, executives got the idea. Colonial Williamsburg is, well, it's Williamsburg. Uh, Williamsburg was the capital of Colonial Virginia before they moved it to Richmond. And in the 1830s, uh, basically, they start revamping some of the old houses because the area had gone into dismay, you know, disarray. And so they instead kind of rebuilt some of the houses, moved some new ones in. And so you have people there who kind of are historical reenactors acting as though this is Williamsburg. You know, it's the dawn of the revolution, that sort of thing. You know, you have the actual House of Burgesses there. You have some of the old churches. You have the governor's house, that sort of thing. And you're going to have reenactors. I've actually been there recently. I've been there recently, about a year before the pandemic. Uh, my wife and I went to Richmond to visit her godmother. And while we were up there, we decided to go to Williamsburg. I have been since I was a kid. And it was fascinating to go. I mean, yes, I'm a giant historical nerd. And, of course, I want to go see history stuff. And, you know, in in some regards, they do a pretty good job of, you know, this is the park and you do have to pay admission to get into some things. Not everything, but a lot of things you have to pay admission to get into. And uh, they have stores where you can buy stuff. But it's also kind of weird. 
Because, for instance, uh, you can buy blacksmithing things. Like, they have an honest God blacksmith. He's making, you know, horseshoes and nails on an anvil. And you can buy them from him. And when you do buy the, them from him, he's going to whip out his iPhone with his little, uh, you know, square card swiper in it. Which was weird. It was weird having like, this guy, you know, in his in his knickerbockers with his buckled shoes and the three-corner hat kind of, you know, bust out his iPhone and, like, swipe your credit card. A little weird. Likewise, uh, I remember whenever I was a kid, whenever I was a kid, they had, like, the best Benjamin Franklin impersonator. Oh, my God. He was amazing. He knew all this stuff. He knew all the history. Like, I was trying to quiz him on stuff, and he got me every time. I mean, I was 13, and I was kind of a bratty 13-year-old, and I wanted to show how smart I was. And still, this Ben Franklin, he's, he's kicking butt and taking names. He's, you know, he's, 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 he knows everything. I remember just having the best time with it. And he, he stayed in character the entire time. And as my mom and dad and I we were leaving, they had like a little tram or a bus to take us back to the visitor center where we parked. You know, it was the end of the day. And I see Ben Franklin behind the scenes, still in his outfit, hopping into his Volkswagen. And that felt weird. It felt weird to see Ben Franklin, who, like, if you had told me different... I would have believed he was a time traveler because he was he was great. And then there he is hopping into his um, to his Volkswagen. But still, I mean, and also you have something like Bush Gardens, which is in that area, too, which is kind of a zoo in an amusement park. So Colonial Williamsburg kind of skirts the line between, you know, public service and roadside attraction. However, Disney would have been way more blatant about it, way more blatant about it. Uh, needless to say, it does not open. It does not open. I kind of would have liked to see it just to see it. But then again, that's just me. I'm a history nerd. And uh, yeah. So now let's talk a little bit about the actual Pocahontas. Now, before I get into the actual Pocahontas, it's very important for me to iterate what this isn't going to be. This isn't just going to be, here's what the movie got wrong. Here are some historical inaccuracies. I mean, come on. It's a kid's movie. It's an anime movie. It's a Disney movie, for God's sake. I understand there's going to be some differences. That said, there are some key things that I do need to talk about, some very important differences between the actual Pocahontas and the Pocahontas shown in the in the movie. Uh, the first thing is Pocahontas's age. Uh, when Pocahontas... Uh, basically, whenever Jamestown was formed in 1607, Pocahontas was only 10 or 11 years old. She was uh, she was young. She was a child. She was a, she was a honest to god child. Uh, she's not a full grown model. That that is something that uh, even at the time, whenever the film came out in '95, that uh, you know critics were like, "Hey, Pocahontas did not look remotely close to this. She was not some you know tall 20 year old model type person." Uh, John Smith, likewise, John Smith is in his mid-20s, actually in his late-20s, early-30s, by the time he gets to Jamestown. And, and the film actually kind of gets that somewhat correct. Uh, Mel Gibson's character is kind of in that nefarious, you know, young adult, but definitely still an adult age. And um, John Smith was a veteran by this time period. He had done a lot of things. What exactly he had done is a bit uh, squeaky. It's a bit uh, in the ether because most of what we know about John Smith comes from his own writings. And um, a lot of these writings are almost certainly exaggerated. A lot of the stories about what he said, uh, you know, what he's doing in places like the Holy Land or just some of his adventures, they're almost certainly exaggerated. Likewise, what he talks about going on in, um, in Jamestown along with Pocahontas, they are almost certainly exaggerated as well. Now, Jamestown itself, uh, such as Jamestown was, was very much an outpost. Uh, Jamestown was an outpost. It was not 
a very successful place to be. Yes, it was the English's first um, American colony, but it was not a very successful colony. Now, why is England interested in getting colonies? Well, that has to do with the competition with the Spanish and uh, the French and other individuals. Uh, you know, Columbus, you might have heard, sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Um, that in of itself was not too successful. What was very successful was the conquistadors that come later. Uh, people like Cortez and Bizarro. They really conquer a lot of areas in South America, um, in Mexico, that's part of North America. And they're getting very wealthy. They're getting uh, incredibly wealthy off of that. And they become kind of the envy of Europe. Uh, later, Portugal gets involved with that. They start doing things in like Brazil. And so, um, and then France gets involved with New France, uh, kind of, you know, lower areas. Uh, the Spanish are the first to come to Florida, which Florida's kind of an outpost for the Spanish. But, you know, the, the English want to get involved too. The English are very interested and maybe we should finally get involved in this. It's only after things like the Spanish Armada is defeated that England has a real chance of it. Problem is, most of the quote-unquote good land in the nude world had already been taken over. And by good land, uh, you're going to hear this phrase a lot, good land, what is good land, particularly when we get into next week, uh, next recording when I talk about the Crucible and other things like that. What, what is meant by good land in this time period is stuff that like easily has gold, You know, easily, um, easily get wealthy off of that. And so pretty much the English are dealing with the northerner part of North America, you know, the, the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay Area and also New England later on. And so their main drive is profit. Um, Pocahontas, the movie, has a, has a great song at the beginning called The Virginia Company, wherein the, uh, wherein the sailors, you know, are, are singing about why they're going to the New World for glory, God, and gold. It's mainly about uh, gold. Yes, there's some desire for personal glory. Uh, some justify these things by saying maybe we're going to proselytize the Native Americans. That's not a very strong bent. Um, I should also mention now, since I'm getting into this, uh, theology of these people, it's not the strongest. Um, they're, they're not disinterested in God, nor are they disinterested in proselytism. However, they're much more interested in profit and the approach they have to faith tends to be very pragmatic, uh, very much like, you know, say a couple of prayers. Hopefully you go to heaven one day. Maybe God will save you from this horrible disease, particularly once they get to Jamestown. But by and large, you're not having any real in-depth, um, you know, religious firmament happening here. It, it does happen later on with things like the pilgrims, which I'll get into when we talk about the crucible. But it does exist. It does exist. And it's kind of the uh, America is kind of a merger. The United States of America is kind of a merger of these two uh, mindsets, one very profit driven, one very uh, religiously minded. But the religious mind comes a little bit later. The profit driven is coming on right now. And so Jamestown itself is a very cruddy outpost. It's not a very successful outpost. Um, I've been to Jamestown. In fact, the last time I went up to Richmond with to uh, visit my wife's godmother, uh, in addition to going to Williamsburg, we also went to Jamestown. We went to Jamestown, and that was fascinating. It was very fascinating to go to Jamestown, actually see the location, and it's, you know, it's a very important historical site. I will not deny that. However, it's a little bit of a, I don't want to say dump, uh, but 
it's a very small location. It's not a very well defensible you know, position. It's yeah, it's in the bay. Uh, you know, you have the you know you have the the, uh, the bay right there. Very easy uh, water. You know, ships might be able to come in. The British Navy would be coming able to come in. But that's about it. Um, it's surrounded by swampland. It would be very hard to defend. It's very hard to grow much of anything there. And the site itself is quite small. Jamestown is important because it's the first, not because it's successful. Um, it's only later on that the Virginia com- colony becomes quite successful. So when John Smith goes there, he, it's been there for a little while. Uh, Jamestown has been there for a little while, and it's been going bad. Uh, the first the first winter is brutal for the Jamestown residents. Uh, this is often called starving time, where basically they are starving, and cannibalism is not unheard of during this time period. Uh, they're doing all sorts of not great things. So Jamestown is crazy small, uh, and death is quite common. Now, in the film, they do talk a little bit about, uh, you know, them wanting gold. They don't talk about the death. And also, John Smith's not really on the first boat to Jamestown. He's, he's on a later boat. Uh, Smith does what he can to keep it going. You know, by the time he comes to Jamestown, he's like, oh, you know, this is kind of a dump. I'm going to try to do what I can. He doesn't stay very long. He's not too successful in getting Jamestown up and running. What does get Jamestown and later on the Virginia colony successful, actually mainly the Virginia colony successful, is tobacco. Uh, once tobacco comes in, once they're able to grow tobacco, uh, that gets it a lot more money. That gets a lot more interest, and the British are much more interested in getting involved with it. Also, in terms of geography, uh, the film really plays it fast and loose with Virginia's geography, particularly around um, the Jamestown area. Uh, in the film, you will see, particularly in the song Mine, 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 whenever uh, John Smith is demonstrating you know, his, his love of this land, how interested he is, you, you see him going to this ginormous craggy mountain with a, you know, a beautiful high waterfall. Uh, none of that existed in Virginia. Still to this day, there, Virginia does not have, um, yeah, at least in that part of Virginia, big, tall, craggy mountains. Yes, West Virginia, the western part of Virginia most certainly does. But if you're talking that part of Virginia, I mean, yes, you do have some hills, and it can be hilly, and, you know, especially once you get into Richmond, it gets pretty hilly at some points. But it's not these big, craggy mountains with ginormous waterfalls. It's very much romanticizing that. Two weird things the movie does get correct, though, about the geography and landscape of, uh, of Virginia in this time period, though. Uh, number one is the forest. Uh, the forest, you see the forest being fairly free of undergrowth, almost like a, a national park or a, or a nature reserve. Uh, that is actually somewhat accurate because of the way Native Americans did their farming. Uh, the Native Americans around there did uh, slash and burn style farming, where basically they, they slashed, you know, cut down the uh, smaller roots and things. And then burn them, which put nitrogen into the soil and fertilized the trees. And it was, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good way to keep things going, keep things kind of clear. Uh, so, yes, it is actually somewhat accurate to have the, uh, the forest viewed in that way. There have been a lot of really good books about that. Um, Changes in the Land is kind of the gold standard about that, about how, like, the environment uh, truly changed once the British come in, bring in their own version of farming and, and private land ownership. Um, little soapbox for a second. It's a misnomer to say that Native Americans lived in quote-unquote harmony with the environment because every human being impacts the environment around them somehow. I mean, you, you can't live somewhere without impacting the environment. I'm not... Now, they're not as destructive with the environment as other people might be, but saying that, like, you know, oh, they live in harmony and everything's hunky-dory wonderful, that's not really accurate. 
Uh, the other thing, uh, the other kind of small detail about the movie, which is actually somewhat accurate, which is weird, is uh, during the Just Around the Riverbend scene, uh, Just Around the Riverbend, where Pocahontas is singing about the riverbend and she goes through some pretty cool rapids, uh, that's not actually uh, out of the question. Uh, the James River, once you get around Richmond, which is about 40, 50 miles away from Jamestown, uh, well within Powhatan land, I should mention, they actually have class four and five rapids. Uh, if you go to Richmond, that is the only city in the United, only capital city of the United States, which has class four or five rapids running down the middle of it. So, um, you know, it's not totally out of the question that if, if Pocahontas was canoeing down the James River, she might have had some really sweet um, rapids come her way. But the one thing that the movie really doesn't give that much of a shrift to, which uh, really vital to our understanding of Pocahontas, is her father, uh, Powhatan. Uh, Powhatan is the head of numerous tribes that he had conquered. He had started out with his own tribe, but then he had conquered several other tribes. He It was more the confederation, but less of an empire. He pretty much ruled everything in Virginia in that area. Pretty much all of the area around Jamestown, and expanding out for several miles, tens of miles, dozens of miles, almost 100 miles out, is all Powhatan's land. In fact, if you go to Jamestown, you will see they have a very good map that demonstrates, you know, where are all the Powhatan settlements, all the Powhatan cities in relation to Jamestown. And, and what you'll see is you'll see a, a picture of the landscape around Jamestown, you know, around the James River, around the bay. And you will see nothing but, you know, red dots, which are the Powhatan settlements, which are way more numerous, and a lot of them are way bigger, because the, the dots are about the relative size of the, the various settlements. And you see one teeny tiny blue dot, and that is Jamestown. Uh, Powhatan could have wiped out the British very easily. This was not, uh, you know, the, the movie makes it seem like they're somewhat equal, or, uh, you know, the, the idea that the British are viewed as like, you know, maybe they're more advanced because of their guns. Uh, that is a misnomer if there has, ever was one. Uh, Powhatan could have very easily wiped out the British and not even thought twice about it. The main question we have is why he didn't. We're really not sure about why he didn't do that. It might be that he was no idea about how powerful the English Navy was. Um... He had, of course, once the English came, you know, he, he had seen their bigger ships. He figured they came from somewhere, you know, far that might be a fairly powerful people. Uh, he doesn't know how often the British Navy is going to be coming in to resupply them. So maybe he has some doubts about, like, I don't know who I'm dealing with. I don't want to mess with them too much. That being said, he could have easily wiped them out, especially if he had watched for a while and realized that the British Navy is not coming very often. Uh, it could be that he was uncertain about firearms. Uh, the movie really overplays the... Uh, the Native Americans' uh, fear of firearms. Uh, yes, Native Americans don't have guns, but also the guns of this time period are not very good, nor are they very effective. They're very long to, to reload, and also they have a very limited supply of gunpowder because they're hoping to be resupplied by the British Navy. They don't have a way to produce gunpowder there, so guns were not used all that often by the British. It was more of a threat than actually being used, and as I said, they took forever to reload. Uh, Powhatan's weapons were much more effective, much, much, much more effective. Also, he might have just been tired of fighting. Uh, Powhatan had been, had taken over a lot of land and taken over a lot of territory, and by this time, he was at a time of relative peace. It's a, it's a time of relative peace for Powhatan. Nobody's trying to rebel against him. It's, it's relatively straightforward, pretty... Uh, Pretty, 
pretty basic land. Pretty basic land. It's 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 pretty steady, and he's pretty happy with it. He, he's legitimately pretty happy with it. So maybe he doesn't want to cause another conflict. Likewise, he doesn't really want to uh, possibly exasperate relations with some of the tribes he's taken over. It's all unsure. I will iterate it's all unsure. But what's really more important is Powhatan is a way more powerful and important person than the movie makes him out to be. In the movie, he is just Pocahontas' dad. You know, he like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm going to attack the British. Maybe I won't. That sort of shtick. Now, the other thing is we know very little about Pocahontas herself. We know very, very little, precious little about Pocahontas herself. Most of what we know about her comes from Smith's own writings, which, as I talked about earlier, are suspect. They're, they're quite suspect. And while she is alive, she isn't a very big figure. Um, she only becomes a very big figure, uh, kind of a romanticized figure, after her death. She is not the first historical figure to become romanticized after their death. There's a lot of people like that. I mean, your James Deans, your Marilyn Monroe's. I'd even argue your Tupac Shakur's. They don't really become like the icons until after they're dead. And, and particularly because of the way she dies, just how young she is when she dies, and kind of the story about it. Yeah, the story of Pocahontas really comes out afterwards. A lot of it is based upon uh, John Smith's writing, which he does write after she passes. So here's what we do know. Here, here's the very little things we do know. For, here's the one thing we know for certain. She is a daughter of Powhatan. That's all we know. <laughs> we know she is definitely Powhatan's daughter. Uh, she's most certainly not the only daughter. Um, the, the movie makes it seem like Powhatan only has one child, Pocahontas. Uh, because of the nature of Powhatan's conquering, he had several children, several wives, uh, she was definitely not the only daughter. She might have very well been the favorite daughter, though. Uh, she might have very well been the favorite daughter of Powhatan. That may not be out of the question. But still, Powhatan is a very powerful man. He has a lot of children, a lot of wives. Pocahontas is one of his daughters, not the only one. Possibly could be his favorite daughter, but we don't know much there. Now, we do know she's around 11 whenever the English come, and she does have some interactions with them. She does have some interactions with them, more than likely with Smith. Um, almost certainly she has some interactions with Smith. They are certainly not of a romantic nature because he's like 30 years old, she's 10. They, you know, There's nothing going on there. There's no romance whatsoever between the two of them. But there's no way of knowing exactly what happened. Now, one of the longest-running myths about Pocahontas... I might even put this into the legend category because we don't know the accuracy or not. It's not a myth because we can't entirely disprove it. But in Smith's account of Pocahontas, he talks about how she saved his life. The idea that basically she um, he was going to be executed by the Powhatans, and then she threw herself upon him basically to save him from being executed. That's the climax of the film. The climax of the film is Pocahontas throwing herself upon John Smith to basically save uh, him from her father killing him. Now, there's no way of knowing exactly what happened. Um, there is evidence that this could have been a ritual that the, uh, the Powhatans did, the Powhatan Indians did, uh, for adopting people into their tribe. The idea that basically it's kind of like a ritual, kind of like a, I guess maybe a little bit of hazing. Like, he was under no real threat. It's like, you know, oh, they're going to pretend to kill him. And then Pocahontas saves his life, kind of sponsoring him for membership into the tribe. And therefore, he is accepted into the tribe. And, uh, you know, she's kind of his adoptive 
parent, a sponsor in a, in a way. Uh, there's been some evidence that might have been the case, particularly because of just the relationship that Smith and Pocahontas have after this, which is a very friendly relationship, I will say, as we talk about what happens to them. Definitely not romantic. But they, they have a friendly, you know, cordial relationship, particularly whenever she comes to England. Uh, more than likely, this was a ritual. It's, it's very unlikely that Smith was in any real danger had this happened. However, the main account of this is in Smith's own book in which he exaggerates the hell out of everything. Now, why does he exaggerate? We'll get into that later. But still, um, this is probably not quite happens. Now, here's what we definitely know about her. Um, in 1613, in 1613, so about, eh, you know, six years or so after this, Pocahontas at this time, she's 16, 17 years old. Uh, she is taken captive. She is taken captive by the English uh, as ransom against Powhatan. Basically, there's a prisoner exchange, and basically, the English take Pocahontas as a uh, ransom. Basically, they kidnap her, they hold her for ransom, hold her captive, basically, to get some of the English that Powhatan is holding himself. Basically, it's like, hey, Powhatan, we want those English you've captured. Um, we will hold your daughter as ransom. If you give us back the English, you are going to get your daughter back. Now, the English hold on to her for quite a while. The English hold on to her for quite a while, about a year. Um, ironically, they hold on to her, not ironically, but jerkwad-wise, they hold on to her even though Powhatan meets the demands pretty quick. Powhatan's like, okay, cool, you can have the, the guys back. Give me back my daughter. And actually, she's held prisoner for about a year um, at Henricus. Henricus is the second English settlement in Virginia, and it's actually the much more successful one. It's a much more easily defendable uh, position within Virginia. It's a, it's a couple miles up the James River. It's kind of in between modern-day Richmond and, and Jamestown. Henricus, uh, it's a much more successful settlement. It's much more easily defendable. It's a much more easily defendable. It's a bit on a, it's a bit on the bluff of the river, so you have the high ground. There's better farming land around it. It's not like the swampy Jamestown. Uh, Jamestown is pretty much a peninsula, but in reality, it's more like an island because it's surrounded by water on three sides and then swamp on the other side. So pretty much it's an island because you can't do much in a swamp. Uh, Henricus, however, is a much more traditional high up on a river bluff. You have the high ground. It's got good planting land around it, much more easily defendable. Now, while at Henricus, while at Henricus, she converts to Christianity. That's another thing that we do know about her. Now, she might have been forced into this. She might have been coerced into this. This might have been something that was forced upon her. We don't know. We do know she is held captive for a year. Um, we don't know what sort of treatment she got. I mean, we do have the British accounts, but those are suspect. Um, so we do know she converts and gets baptized and takes on the Christian name of Rebecca. She takes on the Christian name of Rebecca when she's about 18 years old. She's about 18 years old, and basically, she does this possibly because of somebody she's just met by the name of John Rolfe. John Rolfe is a very important name for the history of Virginia because he's the first one who brings in tobacco. Actually, he smuggles tobacco. He smuggles tobacco in from the Spanish. The Spanish have it in the West Indies. They kind of have a monopoly on it. He smuggles it in to Virginia thinking, hey, maybe tobacco can grow decently here. 
It grows like gangbusters. He pretty much single-handedly saves the Virginia colony. Not just Jamestown, but the Virginia colony, because tobacco is very profitable. There's a huge market for it in England. Um, Admiral Sir John Hawkins is the one who actually introduces uh, tobacco to England. He's also the guy who introduces slavery to England, makes it profitable. So if there's a... uh, if there's a Hall of Fame for not great people, I, I think Admiral Sir John Hawkins might be near the top of that list, you know, bringing in tobacco and slavery. Um, he's also one of my ancestors. Um, I've done genealogy stuff. I've actually taken my family back pretty far. I, I can go to about the uh, the 10th century in England. And, uh, what a, and, you know, there's some royals in there, which is pretty cool. But uh, Admiral Sir John Hawkins, he's in my line. He's on my um, father's grandmother's side. So my father's grandmother. So my my paternal, basically my dad, George, his dad, Big George. Big George's mom was from a pretty pretty well-to-do Texas family. And her line has all sorts of big names in it, including Sir Admiral John Hawkins. So there we go. Now, John Rolfe is a pretty interesting cat. He was recently widowed, and he wants to marry Pocahontas, who is 12 years his junior. Uh, He's about 30. She's about 18. It's a little squiggy. I mean, yes, there is the age gap. Not unusual in that time period, but still a little squiggy. Also, the scandal is that he is widowed, which that's not his fault. That's not really a scandal. But also, she's not a Christian. She's a Native American. And, the, and basically, he asked the governor, hey, let this marriage happen. So this might be one of the reasons why she's baptized, is so that she can get married. Uh, the two are married. It might be a forced marriage. It might be a coerced marriage. We don't know. But basically, this marriage was seen as a way to keep the peace among the English and the Powhatan. Uh, basically, the Powhatan Indians were not, too, were not too happy with the English, especially for taking, you know, Pocahontas hostage. That said, you know, they're like, hey, we'll marry her off. This will be seen as a way to keep the peace between the English and the Powhatan. Because remember, the English are well aware that the Powhatan could wipe them out at a strike of just any time they want. The Powhatan Indians and Powhatan himself could wipe out the English. And so perhaps I hope now that his daughter is with us, uh, maybe she is going to keep the peace. Now, they have a son fairly early on. They have a son fairly early on uh, by the name of Thomas, by the, by the name of Thomas. Um, anybody who is a ancestor, as our descendant of Pocahontas, or they claim Pocahontas is their ancestor, it all comes through Thomas because that's their one child. Their one child is a son named Thomas. Uh, they go to England. The family goes to England. And actually, in England, she is presented as more of a princess than she had ever been to the Powhatan. Uh, the Powhatan never really viewed her as a princess. Yes, they definitely viewed Powhatan as a king and like the most important guy in the world, a uh, very important chieftain, very important war leader. Pocahontas was never really viewed as a princess. But when she comes to England, she is very much portrayed as a princess. And it really buys into this mindset of like, oh, look at us. It's like God is mandating we're going to take over the entire new world. We're going to take do all these things. Look, here's their savage princess, and now she has been subdued, and she is you know now one of us. You know, we we, we married her off. She has a kid. She's a Christian. Call her Rebecca, and she is kind of treated as a uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for here? Like a, a showpiece in London. Basically like, hey, look at look at Pocahontas. We bring in this great, you know, it's a it's an Indian princess. You can see the savagery of the new land, but hey, we we can conquer them. Not just conquer them, but we can subdue them. We can tame them. Ooh, that's a better word. And that really gets ingrained into the uh, American psyche, the U.S. psyche, uh, this idea of taming the land, settling the West, settling the frontier, that sort of shtick. And Pocahontas is presented as evidence of this. It's also in England where she randomly meets up with John Smith. Uh, Randomly, basically, while she's in England, she doesn't know that John Smith is living in London. Uh, John Smith had long long since left uh, Jamestown and had been living in London. And so whenever he hears Pocahontas is around, he's like, let me go see how she's doing. And so she's like, oh, my God, it's John Smith. Hey, remember you whenever I was a kid? He's like, hey, you're all grown up and you got a kid. So they, they have like a very nice afternoon. Uh, that is something that actually does happen. Uh, Smith doesn't really talk about that too much in his book, but we have other accounts where basically they say that, you know, Pocahontas met up with John Smith and they had a very nice, you know, they, they talked about old times and it was a very warm meeting. Um, it was not antagonistic, uh, certainly not romantic in any nature. However, she is starting to get sick. She is starting to get very, very sick. And so they said, maybe we should... Um, send her back to the U.S., you know, maybe she needs to go back to Virginia, uh, maybe the climate will will be better to her, maybe, she, you know, she'll get healthy. Uh, she dies on way back to America. On, on the, her way back across the ocean, she dies only around 21, 22 years old. She is super young when she dies, and this really romanticizes her. You know, the fact that she comes to England for a little visit, being presented as this type of princess, and then she dies. And that really becomes the story of Pocahontas. That's about the real-life story of Pocahontas. She's actually buried in England because uh, the trip to get her back to, the, to, uh, to America, they weren't able to get too far out of London uh, before she actually dies. And, and that really gets ingrained. It's one of those things that kind of goes into the back of uh, the U.S. psyche. Just like, oh, yeah, the story of Pocahontas. One of those things that everybody like kind of knows the name. They don't really know the story too, too much. But still, she becomes kind of one of these icon legendary figures. I say she's a legendary figure because there is a kernel of truth about her. And so this is where we kind of get into the movie. Uh, the, the original movie was originally going to have a lot more humor and romance. The Disney version was going to have a lot more just like comedy, a little bit of slapstick stuff. Uh, for instance, originally John Candy was um, basically he was cast as Red Feather, a, a turkey who was supposed to be the main comic relief. He was supposed to talk and make all sorts of jokes and stuff. Uh, then John Candy dies. He dies fairly young, and the part is cut because uh, it doesn't really fit the tone of the rest of the movie. You know, the rest of the movie is actually quite serious, and then it feels weird for this one turkey guy who's making all these jokes. So instead, they make the comic relief of the animals who don't really talk. Uh, the animals don't talk. They have like a raccoon and a pug and a, and a, um, and a hummingbird that have some shenanigans. And, and likewise, uh, there's also a love duet with John Smith and Pocahontas um, that was cut at the last second. It was cut at the very last second, actually after the premiere. Uh, the premiere was in, uh, in Central Park in New York City which was not in Virginia for some reason. Like, this is crazy that they, you know, they were trying to build up Virginia so much, but instead they decided to do it in Central Park. Apparently the audiences hated this song. Um, It's called If I Ever Knew You. This is supposed to be the Oscar bait song. This is supposed to be the Oscar bait song, the big love ballad between John Smith and Pocahontas. And 
the audiences didn't like it. The audiences hated it. They thought it was boring, which it was. They thought it was slow, which it's incredibly. The action drags to a halt watching this. In fact, most of the, the animation is just kind of like recapping other stuff they did. It's not very interesting animation. It's basically Pocahontas and John Smith singing to each other, then like some scenes show them earlier about them just talking. And it, they also said it doesn't really fit with the rest of the film, to which we fear it doesn't. It's pretty much Oscar bait. It's Oscar bait. And uh, it's kind of interesting because generally in Disney animated songs, animated movies, particularly after the Disney Renaissance, they have a pop duet, a pop version of the song done over the credits. Pocahontas kept the uh, the duet "If I Ever Knew You" as the ending credits, even though that song was not done in the film. Now, casting the movie itself was actually fairly straightforward. Uh, they actually get a Native American actress, uh, Irene Bernard. Uh, Irene Bernard, who is actually of Alaskan Native American descent, uh, not not Inuit, but basically other stuff that uh, other Native American tribes from Alaska. She is cast as Pocahontas. Uh, the speaking voice, at least, uh, and, so, and a move that's not too unusual for Disney movies. The singing voice was done by somebody else, uh, done by Judy Kuhn, who is a Broadway actress, which is very common in Disney movies to cast an uh, acting voice and a singing voice. Uh, very common in Disney movies to have a different actor and singer do the different parts. Uh, for John Smith, they went with Mel Gibson, who is Australian. And not really British, and he's at the time really known for his uh, leading man. You know, he's known for his good looks. This is not Mel Gibson gone off the rails yet. Uh, this is not crazy Mel Gibson. He was still viewed as kind of a leading man type figure. However, for some reason, they do not get somebody to be the singing voice of John Smith. Um, it is awkward. Uh, Mel Gibson sings, and it's awkward. That's probably the other reason why If I Ever Knew You was cut, because Mel Gibson sings, and he's not very good. Now, the most interesting bit of casting is actually who they cast as Powhatan. Uh, they cast Russell Means as Powhatan, who is a Native American actor and activist. Uh, he is a activist, longtime activist, longtime speaking out for Native American rights, speaking out against the U.S. government for some of its Native American policies. He actually died a few weeks before I recorded this. I, I know his name was in the news because he died uh, like in October. Like He just died. Uh, he had uh, esophageal cancer. So that could have been seen as controversial. Um, I, I think Disney was just trying to kind of, you know, play the field here, you know, try to appease everybody. Uh, also, another interesting bit of casting is uh, a very young Christian Bale. Christian Bale, you know, who later become Batman, and he's Christian Bale. He was also in the cast. Uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, Christian Bale's kind of a Disney kid. Uh, he was originally a Newsies. He was a child actor. This is one of his uh, earlier Disney roles. Now, the art aesthetic is actually pretty interesting. The, the animation for this is quite interesting because Disney's going for a very watercolor aesthetic, which is not too realistic. It's very... Um, Fanciful, very blended colors. Um, kind of an interesting look. A lot of blending together. Lots of blues and greens in the background. They go naturalistic for the animal cares. That's another thing they do, which is kind of interesting. Particularly after they cut Red Feather. The animal characters don't talk and sing. They look pretty realistic. Also, aside from Grandmother Willow, who's kind of the, uh, you know, the mystical tree that talks to Pocahontas... There's limited magic and mysticism in the movie. It's, it's actually one of the more grounded Disney movies outside of, uh, of Grandmother Willow. Uh, another thing they do is they take a lot of pain to make sure that the Native Americans are represented um, accurately in terms of their outfits. 
Um, I read an interview with one of the animators who said basically, yeah, there's like a five second clip where you see the uh, the Powhatans doing a war dance during the song Savages. And he's like, it took us forever. He was like, you might see that for five seconds. He's like, that was like over a year of research of trying to get what does the uh, Powhatan war dance look like? What would have been accurate? So they're trying to take great pains for it. The film itself, um, well, we'll talk about the critical response in a second, but let's talk about some themes that really demonstrate why this is a 90s film. Like, why can you tell that this film was done in the 90s? Uh, the first one is centerism. Um, this movie really doesn't show the English nor the Native Americans to be the quote-unquote bad guys. In fact, that's often a criticism of this film is that there really is no bad guy in it. The closest you get is Radcliffe. Radcliffe is the, um, the English governor who's kind of based off of a real person who's shown as being very greedy. He's shown as being very greedy, but he doesn't speak for the rest of the English who are shown as pretty good-hearted you know, at the end, they're like, oh, Radcliffe is bad. Let's send him back to England. We're going to have our lovely time living in peace with the rest of the Native Americans. It implies that uh, American history from the beginning was denoted by like a compromise and a middle path. You know, whereas an earlier version of this film would probably show the Native Americans as like bloodthirsty savages and the English is all wonderful and good. This one's trying to show that, hey, there's a middle path. Also, it's kind of interesting in the film, like, aside from the initial understanding, Powhatan seems okay with the English. He's like, all right, cool, y'all can stay here, your own land, whatever. Um, it shows both the English and the Native Americans being justified as being on the land. Um, in reality, the Powhatans had conquered most of their neighbors and were not very peaceful. And also, you would be totally justified in trying to take out some strangers moving into your territory. Powhatan doesn't do that, as we got into earlier, but still, I think the fact that the, the movie is so centrist shows that, you know, maybe a sea change is changing about the way that Native Americans are depicted in film, uh, but still they're taking the traditional both sides need to be here. In fact, I think that's another criticism of the film, is that they're trying too hard to appease everybody, not, not just to append, but not to offend anybody, because they want this to be Oscar bait. The other thing that demonstrates this is truly from the 90s is environmentalism. Uh, the Native Americans are shown as being more in tune with nature, whilst the English are having a more negative impact on the environment. Uh, Colors of the Wind is a prime example of this. It, it's seemingly a rebuke of, of capitalist excess, environmental destruction. She's like, oh, you English, you're just taking over stuff. This sort of rebuke of you know private ownership and destroying things. Uh, contrast this with something, a song like Mine, 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 which is basically the greed of Radcliffe. It's basically there's going to be destruction of the landscape. They're destroying the land. It's implied that you know Radcliffe is a huckster. He's trying to do the work. And, sorry, not to do the work, but take all the credit. Uh, to be frank, this messaging would not have appeared in a Disney movie prior to the 90s. It, it just would not have fit with the times. Particularly, Disney is a major corporation with tremendous impact on the environment. And also kind of fits into something that came in from the 70s, this idea of insinuating that Native Americans are more in touch with the environment. Uh, think of the, the, the crying Native American uh, public service announcement. This idea that, you know, we're going to link and the Native Americans to environmentalism is protecting the environment more. Ironically, before the 70s, most depictions of the Native Americans said that they were destroying the environment. They were just, you know, destroying assets and not conserving them whatsoever. It's only in the 70s where you kind of flip it on its head. This is throughout American historiography, like throughout American historiography, throughout history of the United States, a primary criticism of the, of the Native Americans is that they are misusing the environment and that 
the, the British and the U.S. were justified in taking the land away because they were misusing the environment and uh, the English would use it better and be more productive. So what is the critical response to Pocahontas? Uh, middling at best. Middling at best. Uh, the art direction was praised. However, the plot was seen as too bland, which is accurate. But to be fair, it's pretty much doomed from the start. It's trying to do too much. It's trying to bridge too much. It's trying not to offend anybody. It's trying to get Disney that Best Picture Oscar they so desperately want. It wasn't historically accurate enough to be a documentary. But if they go too hard into fantasy territory, there'd be outcry. I mean, you still have descendants of these people who might be like, hey, my, my family wasn't like that. But if they go super realistic, that's not a kid's movie. And it would be incredibly depressing. Like, a realistic movie about Pocahontas would be super depressing and probably wouldn't make any money, which would be more bigger, which would be a much bigger issue because, you know, at the end of the day, Disney, want to make, Disney wants to make money. They're trying to tap into what they feel the audience wants, what the trends of the day are, and they kind of result in not really do much of anything. It also gets a lot of criticism from the Native American community. Uh, Native American groups criticize the movie for oversimplifying some very complex issues. I mean, the fact that you take the, the very real issue of, you know, Native Americans and the English, who should be on this land, are the Native Americans justified, and turn it into, eh, both sides seem okay. You know, they're okay and happy there. Uh, it's very much oversimplified. Now, there are some other films about Pocahontas um, outside of the Disney movie. Uh, there are a couple of early movies that talk about Pocahontas. Um, she has been a character in, like, stage plays and some films. Uh, there's been a couple silent movies about Pocahontas. Uh, once again, they, they, they still have the same basic tropes of she saved John Smith. Uh, I think the 1927 one shows uh, her marrying John Rolfe. But aside from that, uh, oh, yeah, there was also a very bad 1950s movie, which I cannot recommend under any circumstance. But shockingly, the tale has not been shown all that much. Pocahontas is one of those things in U.S. history that is kind of in the ether, but like you have very few concrete artifacts to demonstrate, oh yeah, this is what we talk about. This is what we talk about. You know, this is what I know whenever I hear about Pocahontas. This is what, you know, this is what's in my mind's eye. It's one of those stories that we talk about in America, but we don't have too much tangible proof of it. Maybe it's oral tradition, or maybe it's something that people just assume is in the ether. Uh, also in 2005, they make the movie The New World, which butchers the story and is also very dull. Now, other early movies about American history. Well, there's quite a few. Uh, there's always Columbus. Uh, Columbus, uh, not too much stuff has come out about Columbus since 1992, the 500-year anniversary. Um, it is kind of weird because uh, Columbus had been a major figure and he's still a major part of early American history. I know the discourse has changed about Columbus, but even a changed discourse, um, I think that might be a decent film to make. I'm surprised they haven't done that. Uh, probably because you'd probably isolate people. If, if he's shown as a murderous, you know, rapist, uh, some people would be upset because, oh my God, that's my heritage. If you just kind of gloss over that, other people would be upset that that's not historically accurate. Uh, also, the subject matter in general is problematic. Like, even the most sanitized version of early American history is going to have to address the elephant in the room, which is tons of Native Americans dying. 
Uh, so many Native Americans die once the English show up in the U.S. because of things like disease and also warfare. Don't don't get it twisted. You know, once the English presence gets stronger, they start you know taking out various Native Americans. Uh, and even in South America, like for instance, Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. Um, that was the movie that Mel Gibson made after Passion of the Christ. Um, kind of forgotten, maybe for the best. Uh, it's more of a historical fiction. I mean, there's so much of this film which doesn't make sense, historically speaking. But it does show a pre, uh, pre-Columbian, pre-Columbus, Mesoamerican world. Uh, it is problematic, though, for various reasons. But as for Disney history movies, there are tons. Uh, this is probably going to be the only Disney history movie I talk about. But uh, if we're talking about like early American history movies, there's quite a bit. I mean, Legend of Sleepy Hollow is one of the uh, one of the Disney ones. Song of the South we talked about, Davy Crockett, of course. I'm also going to mention another movie that comes out in 1995, uh, Tall Tale. Tall Tale is a live-action Disney movie uh, that basically is a story of Pecos Bill, uh, John Henry, and Paul Bunyan. Um, it's interesting that Paul Bunyan does not get top billing. Actually, Pecos Bill does because he's betrayed by Patrick Swayze. Um, and we talked about earlier with like how Disney shows these things in Disney World and Disneyland, Frontierland, things like that. And also, uh, think of the Hall of Presidents. If you go to any Disney park, you're going to see the Hall of Presidents, which is pretty much animatronic versions of our presidents in a very, you know, this is important for history type of mindset. The Disneyfication of American history is not uncommon. So much of what Americans, and not just Americans, but people around the world, what they know of U.S. history comes from Disney movies or the way that Disney depicts things. And these movies really tend to emphasize American exceptionalism. This idea that there is something special about the United States, either about the land or its people. Now, those are some of the issues that are brought up from the Pocahontas film. As I said, there's not too much theologically for the underpinning of the United States. However, when it comes to like the profit drive, the idea that you know these peoples, the, the land can be tamed, uh, these tropes in particular really get ingrained into the American psyche. Later on, Frederick Jackson Turner, know the name if you don't know it already, is going to combine these sort of thoughts into something called the frontier thesis. And you already see the early onset of this with this idea that American development is based upon the idea that there is land that is seemingly available and that the people who live there already, the Native Americans, in time become less of a threat, less of anything to talk about. With that said, I've talked about this for quite a while, so uh, next time, this is not even a class, this is not a lecture, I'm just talking about it. Next time, I'm going to really go in deep on um, kind of mindset, uh, kind of philosophy, intellectual history, in particular theology, when I talk about the crucible. So with that, this is Dr. Stuart Tully for Tully's Take on History, talking about Pocahontas.